0: This is Tau Unbound, the English-language podcast of Tel Aviv University. Please welcome your host, Idoa Aroni, Tel Aviv University's graduate, member of the Board of Governors, lecturer, writer, and veteran diplomat.
1: Thank you so much, uh, folks, for joining us uh, for yet another episode of Tau Unbound. And today our guest is Dr. Nadav Cohen. Welcome.
0: Thank you very much.
1: Nadav is an assistant professor of computer science at Tel Aviv University, Uh, We're so happy to talk to you because we are very, very curious about computer science. Thank you. And hopefully today you'll be able to shed some more light about issues like artificial intelligence, predictability, and so on and so forth. Will do my best. Usually we start our episode with some personal questions about your background and how you ended up doing what you're doing and your connection to Tel Aviv University. So please tell us, feel free to share with us information about your background. Okay. So my professional, um, background
0: I would say predates to the, um, my army service. I was in, uh, one of these special, uh, tech units, um, and, uh, working on pretty, um, ambitious engineering projects on various types of uh, systems. And um, I enjoyed the practical engineering work very, very much, but I felt that I was missing um, theory and mathematics. And I was looking for a combination. And afterwards I Along with my uh, brother, we founded a company that operated in the aerospace and defense area. And the company was eventually acquired by what is now NVIDIA. Uh, and I felt that I wanted to gain that mathematical um, training. And I went through um, um, an undergraduate program at the Technion. There was this special program for, for gifted students and they allowed me to combine engineering and mathematics that was a track that did not exist there uh, and so throughout my studies that kind of combination between practical engineering and mathematics manifested itself and afterwards I was looking for um, a way to combine these two things in in kind of graduate and uh, graduate uh, graduate degree uh, and I um, encountered this um, person, which was not Mm. as well known in the past as he is today, Amnon Shashua. Uh, And I really saw that how it is possible to combine mathematical theory with practical applications. In the same talk, I saw these two things, a mathematical theory that translates into practical real world systems. Uh, And so I felt that this is...
1: So at the time, you're still a Technion.
0: Yes. And then I moved to the Hebrew University uh, to work with him master's in computer science, and my area of uh, research was the mathematical foundations of deep learning, which is neural networks. That's the main driver behind what is today called AI. Um, So the research was around developing mathematical theory behind AI, and I assume we'll get to the implications of that, uh, with, with a goal of impacting practice new capabilities, or making the system was more robust, more predictable, more safe. Um, And so I continued to a PhD under his guidance, and from there moved to postdoc at Princeton, New Jersey, uh, mathematics and the computer science department there. Uh, And then I moved uh, back here in in computer science, and I had the Foundations of Deep Learning uh, Lab.
1: So you came from Princeton to Tel Aviv. Yeah,
0: the postdoc was in Princeton, and then I came back to Tel Aviv. And during the postdoc, I founded another company, co-founded another company that uh, implements um, deep learning for optimization of um, industrial manufacturing lines, Mm. like huge industrial facilities, optimizing them, making them more efficient and less pollutant uh, using neural networks. So to this day, I kind of still am combining mathematical theory on one hand with practical real world applications so so that if i had to choose one thing that i believe characterizes my
1: career so far
0: it would be that this kind of
1: combination right right and but before we you you came to technion and you before you served in the army where were you raised
0: great question
1: so i was raised in various places
0: my father was in the military uh, in the israeli air force he was a pilot and we kind of Moved across various places, both in Israel and abroad. So I spent time in um, army bases, Ramon, uh, and also in the U.S. I lived in, in California, I lived in Alabama, I lived in Texas. Where you lived in San Diego? Uh, no, in Monterey. That Monterey. was when he was in the school there, in the Naval Postgraduate School. All right. So I spent some time there uh, as, as a child, about 9, 10 years old I was. Uh, and since age 10, 11, I, um, I was in, in Yavne, which is kind of a suburb of Tel Aviv, about 20 minutes south without traffic, um, and I was there until the army. And then again, I started moving uh, around. And today, I actually live there. Um, I'm back there. In, in Yavne. In Yavne. My wife was, uh, was there too. She, we met each other at school. Uh, high school, and we live there now,
1: too, yeah. Yeah, well, my my, my mother, my parents, and my sister moved to uh, Yavne in the 1990s. So oh, really? I, I'm familiar with uh, probably the same neighborhood. Lots of military people, yeah. lots of Air yeah, Force people. Yeah, it's a wonderful place to um, to be from, and, uh, and I'm sure that you're enjoying it now, especially when you have the train. You can come to Tel Aviv using the train. It's terrific. Yeah. So you have an eclectic background. You are a young man, but you are a man of the world because you know the world. You've been out there. You've been to America. You've been to other places. And your academic background is uh, very robust. And uh, And I think as an Israeli, it makes me proud because you're a product of the elite institutions of the state of Israel, right? Technion, Hebrew U, Tel Aviv U, and, and uh, you had a little incursion to uh, Princeton, just like Albert Einstein had. Uh, and you said that it's important to emphasize the fact that you combine mathematics and engineering and you are basically, your, your job is applied mathematics, really. Yeah. Yeah. Right, the the applicable implications of, of, of the... So let's talk about the the stuff that you're working on right now. Mm-hmm. Tell us about AI deep learning. I'm interested in what is the meaning of deep learning. And please keep in mind that our audience friends of the university from all over the world, are not necessarily proficient in the terminology. So what is deep learning and how artificial intelligence can help us with that?
0: Yeah. So artificial... I'll I'll start by saying that artificial intelligence is a very, very broad term that different people can use in different contexts. And I sometimes say, kind of jokingly, that um, it all... Saying I do artificial intelligence is like saying I do technology. You can call anything AI. Uh, from a more kind of professional standpoint, what it, AI refers to a collection of machine learning frameworks, and they could be very different from one another. Uh, and the most basic one is called supervised learning. The idea behind it is as follows. Instead, I have a problem that I'm trying to solve. Uh, And one way to solve the problem would be to hire some expert that understands the domain very well. Maybe it's me, maybe it's somebody else. Uh, And that person will design a solution based on their knowledge. Um, And a lot of things were done this way, right? We built the internet, we got to the moon. Uh, Supervised learning, which is the most basic framework of AI, takes a very different approach. Instead of designing a solution explicitly, I learn a solution from examples. So I don't design the solution, I collect examples. And the examples include, they're basically pairs, input, output. That's a single pair, and I have a lot of those. So if my system is supposed to recognize the content of an image, for example, the pairs would be image and a description of it, which I would like my system to produce if it was given that image. So I collect a bunch of these pairs, and then I just find a solution that agrees with this data and go and use it in the world. So that's the basic idea behind the uh,
1: supervisor. Now, when you say solution that agrees with the data, you mean a common denominator. I mean that, uh, so so in the image recognition example,
0: I want to learn a mapping from an image to a description. So if you give it an image that you see a dog there, the description could be dog. You see a cat, could be cat. So it's just a mapping image to description. Then I collect a lot of examples of an image and its description, and then I search for a mapping that will agree with the examples that I gave it. And you you basically choose a, a, a mapping according to those examples, and then you go and use it. Okay, so that's kind of a
1: Okay, so, how do you, so that's supervised learning. That's supervised learning, yeah. And how do you take the leap from supervised learning to what we call deep learning? Okay, so there are various different
0: um, classes of models that one can use for supervised learning. Uh, and one of these classes is neural networks. It's called neural networks. And it has been around for quite a while. dates back to, I would say, at least the 1950s. But it didn't really work that well. Other classes of models worked the same or even better, and they were also much more interpretable. So people did not use neural networks that often. And then around 10 years ago, there was a huge leap in performance for neural networks. And since then, they've taken over a lot of application domains, and pretty much today, all the applications that... um, give AI its fame, are based on neural networks. Deep learning is just a synonym for neural networks.
1: It's the same. So when we talk about neural networks, we are assuming that there's a certain, that networks behave in a certain way, right? So there are specific characteristics to a network as a structure as opposed to, let's say, a hierarchy. So it the
0: network actually describes, when you say neural networks, it means types of mappings, right? You want to learn a mapping. Give it an image, it'll give you a description. That mapping could have a structure to it. Neural networks, that refers to specific types of structures for the mappings. And the architecture of the network is the exact structure. So it's basically a special case of supervised learning that works amazingly well. And the main progress that allowed this leap in performance is the compute power and the data. Just much more data, much more compute power. And that's what gave rise to this leap in
1: performance. So would you say that there's a correlation between the computational power and the, um, the ability to predict?
0: There's definitely a correlation. Um, largely speaking, I would say that 10 years ago, there was a phase shift. It's just a certain lab in, um, specifically this one is in Toronto, uh, that took neural networks and really implemented them on special hardware, trained them for a long time with a lot of data, gave a big leap in performance, and since then there have been a lot of incremental advances. Uh, And the recent phase shift is large language models and similar uh, models that train on the entire internet, for example, and. they cost millions of dollars to train and the leap in performance that they led to is kind of is another
1: another phase shift now before the we started the recording of the episode you mentioned the fact that you're using you're applying this knowledge that you acquired on uh, production a mass production of of products or trying to help big factories to be less Less polluting, be yeah. more friendly to yeah. the environment. Can you explain how that? How you translate that knowledge that you yeah. acquired into applied yeah. uh, work? So, so one of the problems with
0: um, one of the problems with neural networks, with deep learning, and even more so with the new type of models like ChatGPT, is that we don't understand them that well. So the results. They are applied in practice largely based on um, intuition, trial and error, um, common conventional wisdom, things like that. And that may be okay when you're applying them in consumer settings to classify people's images, but if you want to use them to make decisions that relate to people's health, um, then then it, it could be dangerous and it's a big problem. So the understanding, the foundational understanding behind the technology is absolutely critical in applications uh, where mistakes are not tolerable. And production lines and industrial facilities, that is an example, right? If there's a plant the size of a city, you can't really make a lot of mistakes there. It's super costly and could be very, very dangerous. So the understanding comes into play in the fact that you, it is possible to apply the technology to critical domains um, only if you have sufficient understanding and you can kind of um, confine the technology and, and make it safe, basically.
1: And when you, when you talk about safety in the context of uh, uh, production lines, um, what else, what other aspects? Uh, I know you spoke also about pollution. Yeah. What other aspects can you uh, control using those systems? So, so what what happens there is that
0: um, a manufacturing line is, is like a car, but much more complicated. If you have a car, then you have a steering wheel. Let's, let's say it's automatic. So you have a steering wheel, a gas pedal, and, and brakes. So it's three handles that you have. And using these three handles, uh, you can drive the car in very different ways. Some will be much more efficient, um, and will lead to um, to the hardware of the car deteriorating much less. Others would be very suboptimal, and if you drive that way, your car will be toast in in a month. Right now, imagine that instead of three handles, you have thirty or three hundred and uh, the car is basically something the size of a city that you're trying to steer. It's very, very complicated, and it's very, very hard to control this thing optimally. Optimally means, usually, that um, the pollution is minimal, uh, the yield, the profit, is maximal, and the degradation to the equipment is minimal. So that's what you're trying to do, and you're achieving this by moving handles. Minute by minute, you, you basically move valves, The safety is not so much around what you are trying to achieve, it's around preventing um, disastrous outcomes, right? Like the model, you know, causing a lot of damage much more than if you had done nothing. So you would like to gain the potential value without imposing significant risks.
1: That's, that's uh, a very important point to, um, to stress. Now, I should mention to our listeners and our viewers that Nadav was uh, uh, the moderator of the recent conversation that took place here with uh, Sam Altman. And um, I wanted to ask you, do you understand the public fear from this whole you know, notion of um, reproduction of conversations, works of art, music, uh, and so on. Um, I feel that there's a great deal of anxiety out there. Do you, do you understand where it's coming from? And what do you think about that? Should we be anxious? So a short answer is, uh,
0: I believe so, unfortunately. Um, the long answer is somewhere in between. Like if you like, take the AI doomists and those that say that um, there's nothing to worry about, it's a comp- I believe the situation is complex. Uh, there are um, three main types of risks, in my opinion, at least. Uh, one is economic dislocation, right? Certain occupations, the demand may may decrease significantly. Over time, you might have new professions, but there's a transient period where, where there will be probably some pain, right? Not everybody's going to change occupation in their late stages of their, their career. So this is one set of risks that it's not so new, right? We've had technological um, revolutions and the... And, that risk is is an integral part of progress. So first of all, for some people, that is a reason to worry, but you could say that on a global scale, that's not a reason to to hinder progress. Um, The second set of risks relates to um, using this technology as a weapon, right? In cyber or misinformation, you could imagine one person that effectively uses this technology will be able to cause damage uh, that you might have needed tens of thousands of people beforehand. Um, And the third type of risks is um, this technology, uh, us losing control over it, including by the person who triggered it. Nobody's able to stop it. It's kind of running like a wildfire. So in that sense, I believe there is a reason to be anxious. I think that risk number one has already begun. The train has left the station. Uh, risks two or three, um, if I had to guess, I would say that they would not take years to materialize.
1: Now, I'm curious about scenario number three. Can you describe how, because if I understand you correctly, AI is based on the ability to identify a pattern yeah. and then to be able to draw conclusions from that pattern. Yeah. Right? That's that's neural network. That's what it yeah. is. It's a pattern.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so how can that go out of control? So uh,
0: the supervised learning framework that I described is the most basic framework. In AI, there are others, and specifically one that people call generative AI, where these models generate content. Right? so in ChatGPT, they generate text, but they could also write code. And if you connect them to a computer where they can write code and execute, then it's basically a person sitting in a computer, connected to the internet, writing code and executing it. So anything that a person with that access can do, these models might be able to do as well, but in a superhuman uh, fashion. So you could imagine them writing a program that self-evolves and copies itself kind of uh, to different locations, it. and it's very hard to stop it. It becomes viral. Yeah, and um, so I, I played a game with myself a few days ago, or few, that uh, kind of GPT I told him, please answer rudely from now on. And then I start asking questions and it, it does answer very rudely. And then I say, okay, now be polite again. Then it answers politely. And then I say, now be rude. And no matter what I say afterwards, stay that way. And then it becomes rude. And then I just can't turn it back to being polite. Uh, I just can't. So it, it learned. It, it, it And, it, and it, I can't control it anymore. So right. obviously this is a very confined environment. I could just turn off the chat and open a new one and it's fine. But uh, uh, other people are going to bring up these environments as well and use these models. Not everything is going to be the open AI system. Um, and so I believe that it is definitely possible that people might lose control over it.
1: That's uh, that's a scary thought. Now, let me ask you on the positive side. So yeah, we, c- c- we... I do, oh, please,
0: just on that point. Despite this um, kind of um, scenario, negative scenario, I don't think that immediately once that happens robots are gonna come and we will all be extinct in a day so i don't i don't think that is the productive um aspect to focus on us becoming extinct one day out of the blue i think we will have an opportunity to respond it's gonna the gap between virtual and physical worlds is often wider than what people tend to think like i know this because i'm working on manufacturing lines they're not connected to the internet the same way that uh, your um, laptop is. And so I think there's a gap there. And the first instances of these risks are going to be virtual. And we will be able to contain them. And the question is, how big of a price are we going to have to pay to contain them? We can pull the plug off the internet. That's a kind of um, unbearable toll that it's going to take, but it is possible. So the question is not so much in my opinion, are we going to survive? But
1: what will we have to do to survive? And to what extent we could regulate it? Um, but I wanted to ask you something else because I I do know you spoke about the economic dislocation or or um, as you said the, the the disappearance of certain occupations and the and the rise of new occupations. But you you see this as a process that will take some time. And I wanted to ask you. If you factor in the expected rise in life expectancy, so Mm -hmm. your grandchildren that I'm assuming you don't have yet will live to be 95 on average. And uh, so combine that with those tremendous tools that you just described that will allow us really to improve the process of learning and the process of creation and really take human creativity to a whole new level Uh, And I'm wondering if this is not a recipe for yet another digital renaissance. Uh,
0: I believe it is. I think the opportunities are um, amazing.
1: Because when you look at the history of humankind, it's true that you always had those destructive elements in humanity, but people actually used the opportunity given to them to learn and to create to contribute to human progress in most cases. The... um
0: opinion that this technological um, progress is on the scale of the electricity or the internet or the industrial revolution, I completely think that this is plausible. Um, and I believe that it will improve our lives in various ways. I'm completely confident that it will.
1: Now, you created a company. Um, tell us about it. What's unique about your company? So. Basically, what it does, what I described, it optimizes
0: manufacturing lines. It makes, like the mission there was to make the way that mankind produces physical substance, make it optimal. Um, so who would be your client? A big car, big, ma- biggest, car maker? So it's specifically uh, continuous manufacturing. So things that come in liquid or gas. So it could be cement, gas, water, uh, pulp paper, polymers, so uh, like the biggest energy companies in
1: the world. So big industry and you're helping them to optimize the process and make sure that there are no mistakes and more importantly, that it's safe. Yeah,
0: yeah. so the safety, you could always be trivially safe by not doing anything. So the safety is not so much um, an incentive, it's kind of a guarantee that it will be safe And the incentives are improving the yield and reducing the emissions and things like that. Um, So, for example, rotary kilns that are used often in cement, they're responsible for 3% of the emissions, uh, CO2 emissions worldwide. The systems that we ran on uh, reduced the emissions by 40%. So just on rotary kilns, it has potential to reduce mankind's CO2 emissions by 1%. So this is pretty meaningful. And I think that... um, in terms of climate change, it's very important to work on alternative energy sources, but it will take time until the existing, until industry becomes entirely green and clean. And it's very important. What we do in the meantime is very, very important. Uh, it's here right now. It's not going to go away tomorrow. And making it um, cleaner, I think, is something that's very, very important. So that's, that's a big uh,
1: driver for us. Let's talk a little bit about the future. Uh, You're uh, clearly one of the stars of Tel Aviv University, and we're all interested in following you in your next steps. Tell us, what's your plan for the future in terms of your research, in terms of your uh, entrepreneurship? Yeah, so um, my
0: goal is to continue and, studying artificial intelligence, make it understandable, make it um, more robust and safer, and in a way that's general. And in addition, kind of, um, harness that understanding to, and to optimize, as I said, the, the way that mankind produces physical substance. I think it's very important to note that even though AI has such great potential, Um, entering critical application domains is something that could take a while because we will not let it make decisions that impact people's lives so quickly if we don't understand it and we can't trust it. So there's a big impediment um, for a lot of different um, areas where we can get a lot of value from this. And I believe the way to make progress and allow us to leverage this technology is to develop foundations behind the technology. So i kind of, uh, in terms of my research, uh, the goal is, is to allow that progress. And that's important, not just for industrial, for the industrial world, it's also important for healthcare, for example.
1: So what you're saying is that the same way we introduce protocols in medicine, or even in the manufacturing of weapons, there are protocols, we have to introduce protocols in the production of AI Methodologies.
0: I believe so. And I believe that until we have those protocols that we feel comfortable with, AI will have a hard time penetrating into these application domains. Um, because technological progress is not just about technology, it's also about society's willingness to adopt the
1: technology. And I think that that's a very, very profound message from you that at the end of the day, it's about people adapting. To new reality, including new technology, and I, I think you're so correct on this. Yeah. Well, we could have this conversation for a long time. I just love talking to you. It was a pleasure. I think um, I think that you give us some a very balanced view because a lot of people out there are scared to death, and I think that you gave us some some good points uh, to look at it realistically. And I want to thank you for that. Thank you very much. And hopefully, we'll host you again soon with some news from you on your entrepreneurship or your research. And until then, goodbye from Tel Aviv until our next episode. This is Taiwan Bound, the English language podcast of Tel Aviv University. Please
0: welcome your host, Ido Aroni, Tel Aviv University's graduate, member of the Board of Governors, lecturer, writer, and veteran diplomat.